uh, again here in kind of the, the place where we were last week, the first uh, chapter and a half of Genesis, chapter one and the first verses of chapter two. Um, Daryl was, was um, preaching from, from, from this last week, and we're going to be spending some extra time in here now, continuing to unpack and mine this extended section, though, because it's so important for understanding who we are as people, understanding the world, um, understand, and understanding God in the middle of all of that. Um, but as we, before we turn to it as being read, hearing from, from God, let's pray. Lord God, this is your word that we're coming to. This is you speaking. This is you addressing us. And we need to be attentive to this. We need to be attentive to you. You have a very real intent that you are communicating in this. We are here because we want to. We need to hear that. Open our ears and our hearts. Form us more around it. May we see your character and your being in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. And again, this is, you know, this is a chapter that's familiar to many of us if you've been a part of, of the church or, just, or the church in general um, over the years. It's, you know, it's very well known. Um, if you were here last week, you heard this again. But, and it, it's easy to just hear this again. Oh, I, I know this. But as I, as, I, as I read it this time, I want you to, to take note and hear the rhythms and the patterns which are going on in this account. So this is God's word from Genesis 1-1 and 2-3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness 
And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, above the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great creatures and every living creature that moves with which uh, the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rests from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. As we read the account of creation, our minds are first drawn towards the obvious the things that we can see, the space that he creates, and then the matter and the objects and the life forms which fills them. But we can't miss something else very important that he creates, something less visible, something a little more conceptual, but vital for every person here nonetheless. Time. He brings order to time itself for humanity by setting forth the most basic calendar, a weekly calendar which is ordered around the weekly rhythm of work and rest, or of labor and Sabbath. And now, how we as people then, um, both in mass as a culture, both people as individuals, how we perceive and understand work, though, has largely been warped from the original tent, intents that God has put upon them. The Genesis account's clear here. God made all things good including time, and even including work and rest. But do we affirm that, though, in how we approach our work 
or in how we approach taking Sabbath rest. Work either becomes everything or it becomes a necessary evil for us to avoid at all costs. We either embrace work to the point of burying ourselves in it and allowing it to consume us and take over every waking moment or we push it away then and we try to skirt by with the bare minimum. We either elevate it over just the good that it is and make it ultimate or we denigrate it and put it below something or or below the line of goodness there. And the same goes for the way we view rest. Rest is either something that's a nice idea but ultimately for the weak. Or rest is an impediment to, pro- to productivity. But on the other hand, a deficient view of rest sees it as some, not as something that's holy, but as an idol, as the endless pursuit of vacation, or failing to account that, that we are whole people. And as whole people, we need both a physical and a spiritual rest. And in either case there, in every case, We need to view both work and rest as grounded in God's purposeful intent. Both are good. Both are given by him and both serve their purposes. And God himself then sets the pattern for us to follow. God is both the model laborer and he's the model Sabbath partaker so that we can better see then how they function for human flourishing. So this morning here, if you're either feeling exhausted or overwhelmed This sermon's for you. Could be that you're overworked, or it could also be that you're underrested in the ways that God has designed. So we're going to look at this pattern of work and rest in the Genesis creation account. As Daryl said last week, and, and I agree with him, the length of the days of creation in Genesis 1 is relatively low on the scale of importance. Because what's more important here is the pattern that the week took. That God worked for six days and then took one day of rest. When we devote our time studying and thinking about the pattern of the creation week, which God intent, which is what God intended to show us more clearly here, then we will actually see that Genesis 1 and 2 is to be even more relevant for us. Because it's what brings out the implications in our lives. It gives shape to how we live faithfully before the face of God and in the world. And in fact, I would suggest that a much better apologetical value for Genesis 1 doesn't come through arguing about the length of the days, but rather that we take seriously the content and the intent of the days and the week here. That we heed the call to work wisely and for God's glory. And that we engage in purposeful rest, both physical and spiritual, because God's given us a day for it. So both labor and Sabbath demonstrate that we really believe and we really take seriously God's days of creation. And that they have a real relevance and bearing for upon how we live. So we're going to take this morning here to consider how God has brought order into our weeks and organized them twofold. Six days of work, one day of Sabbath rest. So we're gonna, we need to look at work. That's the first thing there. We look at God as the one who works. God's the model laborer. And his labors throughout the week give order to our weeks. And it sets the pattern for our work. One author who I, I read described this as God in overalls. <laughs> I love that. God in overalls, like a farmer 
or a field laborer going through the daily repetitions of his labor. He goes out in the morning. He does his work that he sets out to do. Then he returns back at the end of the day, taking satisfaction in what he just made by seeing it as good. Then evening falls. And then with the next morning on the horizon, as he rises up again that next day and goes out to work again. Yet even though there's this repetitive nature to his work each day, he also takes a joy and a pride in his work. He pours himself into it. He calls it good at the end of every day. And then when he's all done creating at the end of the sixth day, he declares it as being very good. If he approached it with anything less, then imagine the sort of world that we would live in. You can tell when someone doesn't put their heart and soul into their work because it turns out pretty sloppy. But consider the world. Look around. There's nothing sloppy about the universe. The beauty, the wonder, the mystery of things that we can't quite fully understand. It's a testament to the joy and the care that God took, the pride that he took in his work. And as he labored on those six days, his work followed a trajectory towards fruitfulness. It follows this trajectory towards fruitfulness. In other words, the overall direction that the week follows is one of God taking what's barren and lifeless and then bringing fruitfulness and flourishing to it. Chapter 1, verse 2, right away there says the earth is described as without form and void. Right? It's kind of this nebulous idea, without form and void. Actually, I, I love this. If you want to impress your, your friends at Hebrew, it's tohu vavohu, right? It's formless and void. It's this curious phrase in Hebrew that only appears once here. When we hear that English translation, it sounds like this amorphous blob of nothingness. Oh, tohu vavohu, right? But the idea behind it, though, is actually one of barrenness. It's a place that's uninhabitable. It's devoid of life. It's unable to sustain it. But God takes this desolate, uninhabitable void and he works in the space of six days to turn it into, eventually we see, a paradise. A place that's teeming with plants and animals and human life which flourishes and then they're told to go and bear fruit and multiply and flourish in turn. God gets there by going each day out into his work, by speaking into the barrenness and creating habitable places that are just waiting to be filled. He creates the realm of day and night on day one. Day two, then, God makes the skies and the seas. Day three, he not only creates the dry land, but he then he brings forth vegetation to sprout. And this vegetation then is given to seed and propagate. He makes these spaces there. But then in this other corresponding three days, then he fills them. He fills those spaces to progressively further his plans of, of creation and being fruitful and flourishing. On day four, he fills the day or he fills the, the light and dark by, by giving them the celestial bodies to govern the light and dark and to bring order into the day. In day five, then, he fills the, the skies and the seas with birds and fish and all sorts of other teeming life. And what's he tell them? Go forth and multiply. 
Day six, this other place there, the dry land, it's now inhabited by the beasts and the land animals, and they're also then to go and multiply and fill the earth. And then finally, God creates humanity as his last and his greatest creation, bearing his very image and given a very special responsibility to maintain and to cultivate this fruitful creation that God has just made and to take it into these new realms of flourishing. See, this is what God does in his work. He follows this overarching trajectory into fruitfulness. He takes what's barren, what's lifeless and void, and he creates this beautiful paradise and then continues to have it then to flourish and bear fruit. See, and a key component of who he made us as people is to emulate him then by mirroring his labors in creation by continuing to bring forth fruitfulness. Our own work then is to follow the model of God's work. In in verses 26 and 27 of chapter one there, we have this first account given of the unique creation of humanity and particularly that humanity is created especially in the image of God. Now there's a lot of implications in these verses and we're gonna we're going to spend some time in the next few weeks talking about them here, about some of those various aspects of what does it mean to be created in, in the image of God. But the part that's relevant for us right here, right now, this morning, is that God created humanity to, to be his image in the world and to follow and mimic him in a visible way. So that when God gave man and woman then this command to be fruitful, to subdue the earth, to have dominion, he gave them the special task to mirror him, to go about it in a way that reflects God and his good, benevolent desires to see the earth be fruitful. Now, we may not be able to create like God did there, so how do we do that? How do we carry that out then? Through cultivating what God has made and continuing to bring it into new levels of fruitfulness, to follow along that same trajectory that God set in those six days. In one sense, it's like a rocket booster, right? God, God launches, right? He's, he's the booster and, he, and he's created everything. And then, and then he, he sends off us off along the similar trajectory. Now you go and do similarly. Go continue to bring fruitfulness. Cultivate what I've made. Continue to make it beautiful. See, work is good. It might be hard for you to remember that tomorrow morning when your alarm goes off, but it's good because it's given specially by God to us. Good work has purpose. It's done for the sake of bringing flourishing and fruitfulness to the world. It's done for the glory of God. Your work matters deeply. God cares about your work. He cares about how you approach your work, whatever it is. His character is, is reflected in what you do. So let's expand our idea beyond the common understanding of work as just something that you do for a living. Good God-given work follows after him in the cultivation of this earth. That goes far beyond just this idea of agriculture. Cultivation to advance the fruitfulness of this world means growing society and working for its benefit. It's a wider expression of loving your neighbor. Working in construction, what are you doing? You're providing housing. If you work in tech or engineering, you are continuing innovation for the betterment of society. 
you work in maintenance services, you're keeping things running for the benefit of others. If you work in retail, you are providing the goods that people need. Food service and wine, you are not only simultaneously feeding people, but you're also giving enjoyment of God's good gifts. All of the works that you do are intended to cultivate and bring flourishing to the world in their own ways. By advancing society, by helping others, and even just sometimes giving enjoyment of the beautiful things, of the beautiful things because God loves beautiful things. When we think of work and labor like this, and we begin to realize that it also looks differently for one another and in your own situations. And that includes some of you who may not work or have a typical job. Some of you are stay-at-home parents. Some of you are retired. Some of you aren't able to work a regular job. But that doesn't mean, though, that you're still not called to work, at least if we understand work in this wider way. You may not have a, a typical job, but you still have callings on your life. There are roles and obligations that you are called to fill in your own various spheres of life for the flourishing and fruitfulness of the others who are around you. Working to love your neighbors, working to see them flourish, working to carry out the callings on your life as best as possible and for the glory of God. To be parents or grandparents or aunts and uncles who fulfill the call to raise children. To be a source of encouragement to others, to love and pray for others. Friends, what are the callings that God has put upon you for the flourishing and the cultivation of others and of this world? But with all the goodness of work and labor, though, we still have a problem. Many of us feel overworked. Some of us feel lost and consumed by our work, and we're left feeling exhausted and spent and burdened by it. It's virtually inescapable. In fact, being overworked here, this idolization of work is one of the greatest idols probably of the Western world over the past, uh, after the, past, the past couple centuries. And really in America, it only seems to have exacerbated itself. One of the false gods that we most readily bow down to is the false god of productivity. And many of those who are leading the charge to blur the lines between work and life balance function as its high priests. And we follow right along. But the problem isn't work. Work's good. God works. The problem isn't with work. The problem's with us. We were created to work. There's something that's satisfying when we look at our labors, but as we continue to work, 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 it leaves us exhausted. But thankfully, the only task that we were created for wasn't just work. We're also created to rest. God has not only ordered our days around work, but he's also particularly ordered them around rest in the form of Sabbath, which is the centerpiece of the week. Rest is God's kind gift to us, and that speaks volumes about who he is. So we can't just look at work here. We also need to look at rest, the idea of Sabbath rest. And just like with work, rest is also something that God models for us. We rest because God rested in the creation week. And just as God worked on those six days and he sets the pattern for our work, so also does his seventh day of rest then set out the pattern for our rest. As we look then at the, the seventh day, 
we can't help but notice that there's something very different about it than the others. I mean, for one thing, God doesn't work. It doesn't begin with his speech, let there be. There's a break in the pattern. It's an interruption in each day prior. The the day begins, let there be. The next day, let there be. Six times in a row there. It's kind of like how some of us experience the work week. Wake up, get coffee, go to work, and it was so. (laughs) Wake up, get coffee, go to work, and it was so. But then the seventh day starts, and it's quiet. There's no speech. There's a break in the rhythm. It jolts us from the accustomed pattern, even the doldrums that happen day after day after day, because what changes here isn't in what happens, but what doesn't happen. Something's different. Yet what we do have repeated isn't the work, but it's the emphasis on the seventh day and that God rested. On each day of creation, if you go back and look, the day's number, the first day, the second day onwards, they're all mentioned only once at the end. But if you look in verses 2 and 3 in chapter 2, where we have the focus on the Sabbath, on seventh day here, the seventh day is mentioned three times in just those two verses. It's meant to emphasize this day. Hey, seventh day. Did you get that? Yep, it's a seventh day, day seven. Look at this, God rested. It's even the simple numbering of the day there. Even just that that simple numbering being the seventh day, it doesn't fit with the other six. We saw before there is this corresponding set of threes. Day one, two, three, God makes these spaces. He fills them on four, five, six in these ways. But now we have three plus three plus one. We have this seventh day that just kind of sticks out on its own. And again, it breaks the pattern. What do we do about this day? There's something that must seem pretty significant about this day. And it's most evident, though, in what God does. Not only does he rest, but he blesses the day. On days five and six, he blesses the creatures that he made. But now on the seventh day, he blesses the the space of time itself. Not only that, but he made the day holy. He sanctified it. He set it apart for himself and his purposes We'll look at that, what that means in just a little bit here. But what's first important is that we recognize the distinctiveness of this day. There's a special character to it. It's modeled by God taking his rest. Sometimes we get this idea that rest just means lazing around, hanging out on the couch, not getting out of our PJs all day. There are times, like admittedly, where that's important. That's okay, right? Sometimes we go through these exhausting seasons where physical rejuvenation just means extended napping. But when God rests, though, it's something more than than just that. It's something more robust. It's the enjoyment of the fruits of his labors. He's enjoying what he's done. When he gets to the seventh day, he sits back and he takes in everything that he's made. He delights in it. He sees it's very good. He looks with satisfaction and pride upon it. It's pure enjoyment of his work. See, rest in a fuller sense isn't just physical rest. Rest is being able to enjoy and take satisfaction in one's work. It's recognizing the goodness in our labors and being glad in them. Rest is more than simply ceasing from our work. If you stop work, without enjoying the fruits of your labors, you know what that's called? Slavery. 
But God isn't a taskmaster, though. He calls us to work, and he calls us to work well, but also to rest and to take stock and satisfaction in the work that we've done. What particularly, then, shapes the character of the day is that it's holy. In other words, it's set apart for by it's set apart by God for special use and devotion to him. It's what it means when God called the day holy. He set it apart. Throughout the Old Testament, things that were holy were devoted to God. They were set aside for his purposes in worship. The sacrifices were holy. The priests who were holy, the holy altar, these things weren't regarded as common. They were specially for, for the worship of God. You didn't use the holy utensils for a family barbecue. You used them for the slaughter and the sacrifices upon God's altar. And here, God sanctifies. He makes holy. He sets apart for himself the seventh day, the space of time. It belongs to him. The priority is no longer working. The priority is for communion with the living and true God. And in a sense, we need to see the incredible nature of this. God has just created the entire universe. He's just spoken everything into existence. He's given life into a place where there is barrenness. He's created these things that we don't even understand. That like, It's mind-boggling. He has just created the entire universe. And then he says, sit here with me. Let's spend some time together. It reminds me of when I was a kid, when I was just beginning to mow the lawn with my dad. In these hot, humid summers on the Nebraska plains where I grew up, the grass grows thick, it grows fast, and you need to mow at least weekly, or else it's going to get so thick and so damp that it will clog up the mower. And when I was beginning to learn how to mow the lawn with my dad, I'd push the mower around the yard, I'd cut the grass, and then he would take the, the, the trimmer and he'd, he'd do the edge work along the sides. I couldn't quite manage that at the age of eight there. And he'd make sure that I was getting everything. He'd help me bag the clippings. And then after we'd finished with the lawn, then we would sit together under the shade of a tree and we'd look at this crisscross pattern of the lines on the lawn from the mower. It's beautiful. We'd smell the, fr the fresh cut grass. We'd share a cold Pepsi. And we'd talk. We'd sit there together for a while as we just took in the moment. In a way, it was the communion that we shared. Myself and my dad after our time of work. It wasn't just the enjoyment of the work that was done. It was a time sitting and resting with my dad. Sabbath rest is like that. We rest with God as we commune with the Heavenly Father. What we need most isn't just physical rest. We need the spiritual rest. We need to enter into the presence of God as we gather together before him in worship. It's what he set the day apart for, for us to meet with him and it's the main priority of our days because he knows that we need it. He knows that we need refreshment in our whole selves, both our bodies and in our souls. And apart from being with him in worship, it doesn't matter how much physical rest or enjoyment that we get, our souls will still be weary. It's a gift from the Father to call us back here week after week and hear the words of Jesus again and again as he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
and then to be able to come back and receive from him, to partake of the fruits of his work for us in his life and in his death. So when we approach Sabbath, we ought to approach it in the same way as we would a holiday. You should come to it like a holiday. Holidays are special days. They're set apart on the calendar for gathering, for feasting, for breaking the regular rhythms of life in celebration. See, too often we approach the idea of Sabbath in terms of what we can and can't do. And certainly we look at the way that, that at this day that God rested, and we look at what he did to form the model of how we ought to approach it. A worship and rest and a day set apart from our normal activities form the non-negotiables for us. But sometimes, though, we spend way more time parsing out the specifics and we forget the spirit of the day. We forget that this is a holiday for us to enjoy. Now, you don't do that with holidays, do you? You have the certain core elements and the aspects of whatever holiday it is that you're celebrating, whether it's 4th of July, Thanksgiving, Christmas, But apart from the fireworks and the hot dogs from the 4th of July and then the turkey and pumpkin pie at Thanksgiving, then there's all sorts of other ways to to enjoy the day for what it is and to celebrate. And that's how we ought to approach it. We ought to celebrate. We ought to enjoy this day with others. We ought to come and commune with God. Come to worship to commune with him. And then gather with other believers together here in a display of the visible communion that we have with one another. We get to enjoy the good gifts that he's given to us. We get to make it a rich day. It's no wonder that the Puritans used to call the Sabbath as the market day of the soul. It's a place for us to come and find refreshment as whole people, as people who are both body and soul. Because the more that we celebrate and we enjoy Sabbath as a good gift from a good God, then the more beautiful that he appears. When you enjoy Sabbath as whole people, you show others who are bound to an overworked culture and left completely exhausted of just how good and how liberating and how freeing it is to know God. Because our God has given us a weekly holiday to celebrate. God is master over us. God orders our time. And as he does so, he also orders our lives. Our Sabbath rest is a confession. It's an affirmation of faith. We are confessing to the world. We are confessing to one another. We are confessing even to ourselves that he remains Lord over every aspect of our lives, including our time and how we use it. He owns the entirety of our lives. And when you're taking part in proper Sabbath rest as it was intended, if you are taking rest in God, you are declaring, I am not a slave to production. My boss does not own me. My industry does not own me. My work does not dictate who I am, nor am I chained to endless labor or deadlines. But I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ who has set me free from being enslaved to my work and he has allowed me to rest. And I have infinite worth and I am loved more than I know even to the extent of Jesus going to the cross not because of my own labors but because of his grace which has sought me out. There's one more difference in the seventh day than the from the other six. 
There's no ending refrain of there was evening and there was morning. See, in one sense, that day of God's rest hasn't ended. It's a very long day. He's continuing to enjoy his, that rest. And in that rest, on that seventh day that we read here, he spends his time in absolute delight with his creation and in close fellowship with the humanity who he created. But something happened. The rest that we as people experienced with the triune God was disrupted. The communion that we had with him was broken by the fall into sin and we have been left in a weary, exhausted state ever since. But though God rested in his work of creation, he continues still to work to this day in a different way. Working to redeem us. Working to redeem the world from futility and sin and back into communion with him. To experience that rest in its fullness again once more. Jesus came to do the Father's will. He says that I came to do the works of my Father. He came to to bring to fruition the plan of God that would reconcile us back together again. To bring us rest from our failings and reunite us in inseparable communion. And that seventh day of God's rest, a true, lasting, eternal Sabbath rest with him, it's still open. And he invites you to come and to enter into it with him. If you've never experienced that before, that's not by what your work, it doesn't come by your work, it doesn't come by what you've done, it comes through faith. It comes through receiving what Jesus has done. Hebrews 4 says, don't harden your hearts, but come freely in faith and find rest. Find rest as revealed in Jesus Christ and allow him to take the burdens of your exhaustion and be free. And as we come to this table then, Jesus reminds us again of his promises that are enacted by his body and his blood given on the cross that we will eat and we will celebrate with him someday in eternal Sabbath rest. We will commune with him as whole people. And we do so by his spirit in this communion meal that we will partake in in just a moment. The meal that we have here anticipates that day. So let's come this table. Let's celebrate and let's find our rest once more in Jesus. Let's pray.